Okay, good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Leviticus, first chapter, verse 1 through 9, regarding the burnt offering. The Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you bring an offering of livestock to the Lord, you shall bring your offering from the herd or from the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you shall offer a male without blemish. You shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting for acceptance in your behalf before the Lord. You shall lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be acceptable in your behalf as atonement for you. The bull shall be slaughtered before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, a priest, shall offer the blood, dashing the blood against all sides of the altar as the entrance of the tent of meeting. The burnt offering shall be flayed and cut into its parts. The sons of the priests of Aaron shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the parts with the head and the suet on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But his entrails and his legs shall be washed with water. Then the priest shall turn the whole into smoke on the altar as a burnt offering, an offering by fire, a pleasing odor to the Lord. May the God bless the reading of the words. Thanks, Pastor Leslie and team, for uh, guiding us in singing and worship together. Friends, we're going to preach about Leviticus today, which I'm super excited about. And I asked somebody, when was the last time you heard a sermon on Leviticus? And they said probably in the last two years, because that's the only the kind of thing you would do. Uh, so before I get started, though, I need to take care of some business. And that is like maybe three weeks ago. I don't remember how long ago it was, Pastor Leslie. Y'all had a choir party after Christmas and after the new year. And I was handed this gift that's wrapped still. And the, there was a challenge extended, which like... I've got the kind of personality that if you dare me to do a thing, I'm going to do it. So be careful with that power. Um, and so Leslie said that the choir wanted me to see if I could like open this and then work it into a sermon. And I don't know what's in here. I don't know who gave this gift. And so I take zero responsibility for the appropriateness of what's about to happen or not happen with this gift. But I felt like last week I was supposed to do this and I, I, it was on my desk. So um, I have to open it now in case like the first thing I want to say works for this. Then we can go ahead and make sure it happens. Um, if you gave this gift and this gets me in trouble, then. Oh, man. So it's roll on antiperspirant. <laughs> from Avon. And it's also moisture therapy. I don't even know what that is. Intense healing and repair extra strength cream for extra dry skin. That is too many uses of the word extra for any product. Um, okay. What? I got, I can, I can do this. I feel confident I can do this. Oh my goodness. Um, I'm, I'm super excited to share with you today out of the book of Leviticus. And, this is one of those books that does not get a lot of treatment in teaching because it's so weird. And yet it is a very, very important text. In fact, we often kind of toss it aside because it's such a strange text. 
but it's in the middle of Torah. And there's this different way you can order things in importance. So I want to just say real quickly that the rabbis saw the book of Leviticus as like one of the most important books. In fact, it was one of the first ones that kids would read. So you can teach Mary the kids about entrails and suet. I think suet is fat, right? Uh, if you would like to, challenge is extended to you. Um, they would like the butchering thing, wouldn't they? Uh, the progression in meaning here is this form. It's something like A, B, C, B, A, where you start and it, it kind of builds and then it lifts into a crescendo and then it sort of goes back down. That's a little bit about how the Torah is arranged. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In fact, Leviticus 19, which is right in the middle of Leviticus, is where the holiness code comes from. And that's the language that Jesus picks up that's super important for like the Sermon on the Mount. So to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, that comes out of Leviticus 19, uh, to be holy as God is holy, or to love your neighbor as yourself, or love your enemy. Like that all kind of grows out of an understanding from the book of Leviticus. So that's why we're going to look at it today, and specifically we're going to look at sacrifice and offering. But first, a story about when I was an overly pretentious student in undergrad. I was an art major. Any other art majors for undergrad in here? Nope, just me and my wife being insufferable together. Uh, because art students have like these really big grand ideas about how the world is to be understood, and we always want to tell you about them with the most obscure visual references. So I was doing this project and I was supposed to choose a famous artist that I was going to explore and like represent, sort of create a body of work or a piece of work that would reference their work. So I chose the artist Damien Hirst. Damien Hirst is a, he's not like a good dude if you go read about him. He's just kind of one of these like incredibly arrogant artists, but he does some pretty provocative art, at least he did early in his career. But one of the things he did, don't go see this one by the way, I read and I'll tell you. He did this set of installations of these animals that were butchered and then they were suspended in formaldehyde and then presented in a gallery with like super creative names like, you know, mother and son out for a walk. But it's two cows bisected in the middle by a bandsaw and then suspended. So this cow right here, there's actually two displays. It's hard to see where it is, but I didn't know how old the kids would be who were here. Um, the cow's separated in half, and if you go on one side of it, you can see all its entrails and all the suet and all the bones and everything. Uh, he's a ton of exhibits like this. The reason I don't think you should go see one of these exhibits is apparently the formaldehyde is leaking to like 10 times the acceptable level, up to something like 20 feet from these exhibits. So that's not great. Um, so here's what I did with my own referencing of Damien Hurst is I decided I was going to make a video. And in this video, I was going to basically show the class how disruptive uh, these kinds of images can be. Because I wasn't... I was pretentious, but I was dumb. It's a great combination. <laughs> and I thought the only reason you would look at Damien Hirst's art is because it's provocative, not because it's trying to tell us anything deeper. And I wanted to be really provocative. So I, uh, at our college, there was a big agriculture department. Uh, tech farms, and they had the best butter and milk and fillets in the area. Um, so they also had a slaughterhouse there. And so I went and filmed this little bitty uh, calf, and it was just, and so you know, of course, put it in slow motion, because that's how you make things feel very heavy and important. And then I put on top of it this violin music, and then I asked them if I could film a slaughter, but of course they were like, no, you can't film a slaughter. Uh, it's like PETA signs are sort of like going off in their head. Um, 
So I just found one online, a video of a, of a cow being butchered. And so then I set that in contrast to this part of the video. So first half of the video kind of lulls the class into sort of a, a state of delight and joy at young calves. And then it cuts to different music that sounds like if Perlman turned the full distortion pedal on and gets really like angry with the music. And then it flips to the slaughter. And I'm just like so proud of myself that I've disturbed everyone so much. Um, yeah. I'm reminded in my ignorance about this project, about how far my life has been lived away from food production, from life and death realities in the world. And this is the part about Leviticus that makes it really hard for us to read, is we are so far away from the sort of concept world that Leviticus exists within. In fact, that slaughterhouse that I presented as this really upsetting thing is actually a lot closer to what's happening in the book Leviticus than any of the meat I've eaten in the last week. Tech farms raised these cows in like open pastures, cared for them really well. They had a good life and then they went to slaughter and they were, that's like, it's good meat in part because the animal lived a good life. I'm so deeply disconnected from food that I have no sense of what it costs to eat the way that I eat. Uh, Leviticus seems to be concerned with the very minute details of our lives such that everything that we do matters to God and all of it falls underneath the realm of the holy if we're paying attention. So Wendell Berry has this line that I love that reminds me of my ignorance with the cow slaughter and of the thoughtfulness of the book of Leviticus. To live, we must daily break the body and shed the blood of creation. When we do it knowingly, lovingly, skillfully, reverently, it's a sacrament. When we do it ignorantly, greedily, destructively, it's a desecration. I don't know if you heard in the reading from James the carefulness, the skill, and the reverence with which the animal is slaughtered. So... If the language itself already kind of puts you on edge, I'm going to ask you just to take a breath and try as best you can to step into the ancient world where this text is from. There is a carefulness to it that I want to dive into today. There are two words that are operative in this section. Um, One is the word burnt offering, which is the word olah. It means like something that rises up to the sky. Uh, So a rising up offering is how it would be translated. And the other word is korban, which I'll talk about a lot more in a minute. But first, let's just walk through what the recipe was for Moses' olah offering. And I wrote it on a recipe card for you in case you want to create it later on at home. So you're going to need a bull. You're going to need an altar. You're going to need some kind of fire. And then you need a priest. Uh, I am not a priest, so don't ask me to come over and help with this. But I can recommend one. And just, you heard the reading, but I'll walk you through the steps here. So, uh, slaughter bull is step one. And if you don't know how to do that, then you can Google it. I'm sure there's a YouTube video. The next part you hear here, and I almost wanted to do this with you, but I didn't want to get my hand really dirty, is uh, they, you take and you sprinkle the blood on the altar. There's another uh, part about offering and sacrifice and atonement where the animal is cutting... I'm looking for ages around here. Well... I see you right there. You're good? Okay. They would cut the animal in half. They would set it on two sides like this. And then the people would walk through the animal. 
Like right through, this is what it meant to cut a covenant. You would literally cut some kind of sacrifice in half and then you would walk yourself through it and then the priest would take the blood and they would throw it on you. This is like a really visceral way to forgive sins. What if we had to do that every Sunday? You would feel it. Slaughter, throw blood on altar coating all sides and top. So then you're supposed to cut the bull into pieces. You place on the fire arranged in a special way with the head and the fat. But then there's this weird step four. You're supposed to wash the entrails and the legs. I don't know what that means, but you're supposed to do it. And then step five, leave it burning until it becomes smoke. This is super important, step five. What's happening in the offering, what's happening in the sacrifice, is it is being changed from one substance to another. It's not exactly just burning. We have a word in Hebrew for burning. This is a different word. This is to turn it into smoke. Something is happening here that is transformational. Offerings and sacrifices were incredibly common at the time, all around the region. It wasn't like Israel made up the idea of sacrifices and offerings. In fact, they modify it over time from all the things they receive from the nations around them. However, sacrifices in all the other cultures surrounding Israel had a specific purpose. You would sacrifice so that you could bribe the gods. You needed the gods to do something for you. We want, we really want to have a child. And so you bring an offering to the gods of fertility, and then you sort of pray and you hope that that god or goddess is appeased. And then you get what you were asking for. Your crops need to come in, so you sacrifice in that way. Or you would like to smite an enemy. That'd be a good reason to offer a sacrifice. And so you, right, it was to manipulate the divine order by means of some kind of physical thing happening down here on earth. It's really important that we get here that offering in this story is not and can never become a bribe. It's never meant to manipulate God. We have our own ways of confessing, of setting our wrongdoings before God. And there are versions of that that can start to feel like manipulation. There's been times in church history where we sort of sold access to God's forgiveness, turned the gift into a commodity. And we talked about the dangers of doing that last week. So Israel takes up this practice that was pretty prominent around them of sacrifice and they modify it. Rather than as a tool for manipulation, it becomes a response of gratitude, a recognition that everything belongs to God, that God is creator of all, which is like the seeds of monotheism, of there being one God instead of all of these gods in competition. And then a response in gratitude to what God has done in history Right, So you offer grain sacrifices so that the crops come in and the cycle goes on and on and on. But what happens if your God has rescued you out of slavery one time, broken history and sent it in a new direction? You want to say thank you for that and saying thank you for that is part of what the offering is about. It can't ever become this. Side note, because of course we're also talking about generosity for these three Sundays. Um, and so part of this is like, what is our own practice of offering or of sacrifice or of giving. Uh, there was a church one time that I'd heard about that was really upset with the pastor. It happens sometimes. It ha- it'll happen here at some point if it hasn't already for you. Um, but the Sunday school class all got together and they decided they had a great plan. 
they were going to sequester their offering, their tithe, until such a time as the pastor did what they wanted them to do. Uh, that gift turned into a manipulative tool is like the most dangerous thing for that congregation. That congregation uh, folded in after a couple of years of that kind of behavior because the gift became a bride or a tool of extortion. But here's the question. This is the first thing that happens in the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus sits kind of in the middle of Torah. What is happening before this? Or what is the context in the scriptures that needs this kind of law or instruction? Vayikra, and the Lord summoned Moses and said to him from the tent of meeting, and then begins to speak. Let me just remind you, if you, uh, if you have a paper Bible, then you can just do this motion. Turn back one page. If you have a phone, then you can just do this motion and go down a little bit on your screen. The book of Exodus is often understood as a book of deliverance and liberation. That is actually just the first like 15 chapters of Exodus. It's 40 chapters long, and the rest of the book is actually much more concerned with how to bridge the distance between God and God's people. How to heal that expanse. And there's a problem that arises in this kind of relationship, and it's where the sermon title came from this week. Uh, It's the problem of porcupines in winter. Do you know the problem of porcupines in winter? Are we familiar with, right? I don't, okay, well, I'll explain it to you. Um... Porcupines in winter, they get cold. I, I know I chatted with some this week. And so they want to like huddle close. You know, you get cold at night and you like snuggle with your buddy. Uh, but, but if you're cold and you're a porcupine, your buddy's a porcupine, you can't exactly let go and give it a full on snuggle because of all of the spikes. So to get too close for porcupines is to enter into some kind of dangerous relationship, but to stay far away from one another is to be in danger also of a kind of freezing. So this is the problem of porcupines in winter. Don't check me up on it. I don't know if porcupines actually do this, but it makes for a great metaphor for God and humanity. Because there's this passage in the early part of Exodus where they go through the sea. Do you remember the crossing of the Sea of Reeds? And, and all the people are in the water or in the dry land with the water beside them and they walk through and then they sort of look and here comes Egypt after them, like all of Egypt, tanks and bombers and Pharaoh and soldiers. And then the water swallows them up. And it's this like big triumphant moment. And, and Exodus 15 talks about the song that they sing to God, Miriam's song, at their deliverance in this moment. But there is also this version of the story that I think about a lot, which is you've just been delivered as a nation who've been slaves, and you're sort of on this side of the sea, and you look to your past, and, and all around you are just like signs of death and destruction. And the people and the empire that is dead is like the strongest you've ever known. And so all that you have left is a future that you don't quite understand yet. And the God who rescued you, who also happens to be the God strong enough to make this happen. I don't know if the people would have felt all the way calm or if they would have found themselves in a new kind of precarious relationship. They knew how to make Pharaoh happy. Just keep making the bricks. You never stop. And you don't ask questions. You don't demand too much. You stay in your lane. The world was understood, even if it was terrible. 
And sometimes that's okay for people to just keep going and going. But they enter into this new world with a God who is new to them, or at least unfamiliar. Over the course of their relationship in those chapters, this God speaks to Moses and the people tremble. Speak to Moses from the mountaintop, from thunder and fire and clouds, and the people tremble. And the people know that they need this God because this God is all that is there to rescue them perpetually from the wilderness and from the fear of death. But they tremble before this God. And at one point they say, Moses, you should go speak to this God because we don't think we can. If we get close, we might get consumed. We saw what happened at the edge of the Sea of Reeds to God's enemies. And so there develops this tension at the heart of Israel's faith, which is this craving to be near to God, but this fear of their nearness to this God. So when Moses disappears up to the mountain to commune, to receive the law, they feel that distance as a danger, and they close that gap with the golden calf. They say, let's make God safe and tame and right here for us. And God breaks out, and there's more death. How do you maintain a closeness with the God who now dwells with you? Because the thing that happens one page back from Leviticus is this set of scriptures. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The tabernacle is this mobile tent temple that they build. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Wherever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on each stage of their journey. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and by fire and the cloud by night before the eyes of all the house of Israel at each stage of their journey. God has taken up residence. The word for the presence of God is Shekinah. The infilled glory of God in their midst. Shekinah is the word to dwell, which is the language that John picks up in John 1 about God became flesh and Shekinahed and tabernacled among us. So we hear that with Jesus and we think, oh, thank goodness, God is close. But at the end of Exodus, it's not exactly like, oh, thank goodness, God is close. It's like, what do we do now that God is so close? How do we order our lives so that we can maintain this kind of intimacy? How can we survive this kind of intimacy with the God of all? Which brings us to the deep language at the heart of offering. So yes, there's like, there's sin offerings, the grain offerings, an offering if you have a bird, if you have a lamb, if you have a cow. Like we could spend a lot of time on that, but we're not going to talk about all those minute details. We're going to back up and ask the larger question of what is happening with the intention of offering and sacrifice. The first thing I need to tell you is that there is one word that shows up a whole bunch of times in your reading. And it's the same word that continually gets translated in different forms. So when anyone brings... An offering, same word. To carry forward or to bring something in the word for offering, it's the same word there. Uh, Bring an offering, there it is two more times. The offering, there it is. You're to offer, there it is again. You must present, same word there. You go back a little bit more. Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood, same word. At the very end, you are to wash the internal organs or the entrails, same word. Here's the word. It's on the front of your bulletins. It's the word... Uh, karav in the Hebrew language. 
This is part of why I love Leviticus. It's always good to teach you fun new words. Um, so in Hebrew, uh, all of the words sort of derive from a three-character root. I love the Hebrew language because it is very economical with its language. Each word is carrying a lot of meaning, a lot of what we would call like semantic range. So karav can mean offering, it can mean to draw near, it can mean entrails or your innermost parts. You read in Hebrew from right to left. So in English it would be like the cuss sound, the rus sound, and the v or the b sound, karav. And this is uh, how it transliterates or how it sounds as a noun, korban. The word korban is the word for sacrifice or for offering. But if the root can carry all of these different meanings, then it would actually be probably smarter for us to think about it like this. This kind of coming close by bringing close. And this is what offering was instituted to solve, was the distance between us and God, that felt distance. We needed a way to span that gap. And so the way that it made sense to move us close to God internally in our disposition or in our intention was to bring something of our own and move it close to God. Like to bring an animal from the field is to bring something quite intimate to your life. In fact, that language of like from the flock, Israel becomes known as like the flock or the herd of God over time. It's quite literally supposed to indicate that you are carrying your own body to the altar and setting it up there. In Karav, it means to come closer, to draw near. And this is the genius of the offering is for people who are terrified about the nearness of God, but also need the nearness of God to survive the world. They had this way, ritually, to enact a pulling in close, over and over and over again. And it wasn't about the sacrifice, per se. That becomes like another metaphor, another kind of partial meaning for the deeper meaning underneath it because sacrifice goes away like there is not a temple right now operating where there are blood of goats and bulls and birds being sacrificed all the time there's a dream for that in some versions of judaism but it's not currently present so sacrifice goes away in its like bloody form and it reappears in a new form over time because there was a heart to the practice over time judaism shifts sacrifice to offering up prayers and mitzvot, or good works, acts of charity and loving kindness. In fact, sacrifice is one of the spaces where you can come closest to idolatry inside religious practice. Because it's the thing that looked most like the other nations. Like Baal has a sacrifice altar, and Artemis has an altar where you can sacrifice, and then God has an altar, and what makes us different than those gods? And yes, it's gratitude and not bribery or extortion, but the more the practice sort of loses the heart, the more it slips into something that is not life-giving, but is life-destroying. Because offering is to set our intention toward a nearness with God. 
we say in the, in the congregation, we say this in, in the staff with leadership, that um, if we notice that somebody begins a practice of like deep generosity with our church, so they begin to like give at a level that's unexpected, it usually indicates that they are making a heart move toward our congregation. Like, yes, of course, the money has meaning for the way we can run our ministries, but more than anything, it says something about the, uh, the like moral fabric that is holding us together. To give gifts to one another is is in fact to like say something about the relationship you hope is born in the exchange of those gifts. Now we don't sacrifice like bulls and goats around here, at least not yet. Maybe that's the next uh, church marketing strategy. But we do give. And our giving is deeply informed by what Leviticus offers us which is a way to set that which matters to us close to what matters to God and to trust. So this gift of giving, right, it was present before Israel takes it up, but they modify it. You might offer a sacrifice at the kill of an animal if you're hunting. That was like a pretty popular tradition in indigenous cultures around the world. If you go on a hunt, you kill a deer, there's some kind of offering you give back to nature from that deer's life. It might be a part of its body, it might just be a simple like blessing or thankfulness, right? It says something about the way that we live off the gifts of others, that we are not self-contained. Over time, that sacrifice moves away from just the, the gift of the one who's given a life out to the tribe and that that sacrifice process moves into the whole village and and it brings the gift circle bigger but there comes a point at which god is under the equation and you take the sacrifice and you set it on the altar and up the smoke goes and again from last week i read about lewis hyde in his book the gift talks about how that move where god becomes part of the gift circle is when the gift moves into mystery turn the whole thing into smoke and then watch it rise out of your own vision out of the material world you live in into some other sphere the gift passes in the mystery and Hyde says when the gift moves in the mystery it's when it refreshes when it leaves you bends around the corner and then shows back up in your life in some form you didn't expect is when we are enlivened it says in this passage that the sacrifice is the means of atonement. Atonement is a loaded word. But kind of at the surface level, it means like a covering over. And at a deeper level, it means to make something holy or suitable to be in the presence of God. So there's a story earlier in Exodus where they, they have a sacrifice and they take the blood and they throw it on the tabernacle. And this makes the altar ready or sacred for the use of like religious rituals. So there's something about this process that helps the participants feel at one with God. That's like atonement, right, in our rendering of the language, at one meant to pull back together, to heal all that's been broken. Today's MLK Sunday. And I think probably the person who most carries forward the like spirit of King um, is a Reverend uh, Willie Barber. And am I right, Zach? Repairs of the breach—that's like the language they've been using. It's that same kind of healing of what's been divided. There's a prayer I've shared with you before 
um, I'll share with you again by Thomas Merton. It reminds me of the way that atonement is working here. Like, we feel just like our ancient ancestors have felt that distance between ourselves and God. And for various reasons, we might feel that distance more acutely. Maybe there's like an addictive pattern that we are in that is not for our good, but is often for our disintegration. And that addiction cycle moves us far away from relationships of healing, including far away from the God who might sustain us. And so there's this craving, right? There's all kinds of reasons why we might find ourselves far away from the God who we say, at least with our language, is near. And atonement, the craving for atonement, the craving for union, maybe sometimes just the craving is enough. The prayer from Merton, it says, My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I don't see the road ahead of me. I can't know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. The fact that I think I'm following your will does not mean I'm actually doing so. In this line. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope that I have that desire in all that I'm doing. Never doing anything apart from that desire. I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I know nothing about it. I'll trust you always, though I may seem at times lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. It is not necessarily that we want everything to be made better all of the time, but simply that we are not left alone in that struggle. That God has not abandoned us to the fates. At the heart of the book of Leviticus is a set of rules and instructions that says quite clearly that God has not abandoned reality, but is in fact concerned with all of it. The way we eat, the way we sleep, the way we forgive, the way we legislate, the way we disperse property, the way we let our, our friends, our workers rest, like every, everything is touched in the realm of God. Oh, shoot! Remember these? Deodorant and face cream? I don't know if I can do it, y'all. I mean, at its most obvious, it's the intention to get better, right? It's like maybe the lotion is a placebo effect. I don't know if lotion actually works because I barely ever use it because I don't believe in witchcraft. Um, (laughs) How does deodorant really work, y'all? Antiperspirant, just something makes you stop sweating? I don't know if I would trust it, but you hope that it does. And maybe the will to please your neighbor with deodorant does, in fact, please them. Um, Somebody check me off. I did it. Deodorant does help you draw near. <laughs> psalm 51. This is the psalm David shares and sings after his uh, fallings and failures, his murderous and adulterous ways. You remember this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. It says in verse 6, you desire truth. In the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. A little bit later, it says, 
For you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. The desire to please God does in fact please God. There is a sense in which we can get caught up in the rituals and think we have to do them in this exact way or God is not going to be pleased. Sometimes people hold on to like certain like minute versions of, of theology or of morality or of ethics this way. Like if I don't get all of this right, then God is going to get really upset with me. I always tell folks in that situation, like, would you take a step back and take a couple of breaths? And what do you think would please God in this interaction? Is it a kind of like wooden literalness to this or is it an expansive understanding of what God is saying in this passage? God is saying in this person's life you're across the table from. But here's the like last good news I want to share with you this morning. Um, yes, we've been given away an offering. An offering doesn't stop just because we don't sacrifice. We've been given away to move ourselves closer to God. To take what matters to us and throw it close to the heart of God and hope somehow that our body and our lives move with it. But this is not one directional, this is relational. And so over time, we are reminded that God reaches back. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament is obsessed with what's happening in the book of Leviticus. I'm going to read you a passage and just you tell me if this sounds familiar. This is the language of Jesus, a sacrifice. Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the freshly slaughtered and living or vibrant way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. There was a curtain that stood at the entrance to the Holy of Holies, and it sort of divided those who could enter from those who were not allowed to move close. And that curtain is what's torn in two when Jesus dies. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach. There's the language of Krav. Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There it is, that strange part about the entrails and the legs. Our bodies are now part of the offering washed. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Over time, this desire to move close to God turns into an anxiety that we're never going to quite get it right and we're never going to get close enough and we're always going to be this far away from God. And it overwhelms. The book of Hebrews says like, all the blood from all the goats and all the bulls is not going to solve that existential crisis with which you feel yourself far, far from God. And so God did not leave you in this condition. 
but saw it fit to move closer. So close that God ends up on the altar. So desiring to mend what has been broken that God fulfills both sides of the approach. And as we find ourselves inside the Jesus story, incorporated in body and life with the body of Christ known as the church, we find ourselves also upon the altar. There is something about the deep story that the scriptures are telling that always woos me in. The sacrifices, the like minute details about how to slaughter a bull can make me a little bit confused. But the desire to present myself fully in front of the living God and be accepted, I can relate to that. Or to feel the God of all creation moving close to me in sacrificial giving, I can, I can feel that in my bones. There is no need, my friends, to be afraid of the distance that you feel sometimes or all the time between yourself and the God of all creation. Because even if you have not found a way to reach out yet, God is holding you. I'll leave you with this last image, which is um, a friend of mine when I was in grad school talked about how a God is like the hand that is holding your arm. And you may live your life in this here, but there comes a point at which you might just hold back when you might offer something back, a gratitude for being held all this time. God has done the work. It is ours to live in that reality. To make it so, would you pray with me? God always giving, always surrendering. You gave up power or prestige. You gave up Life gave up control, made space for us to learn how to love you, to learn how to bring ourselves in vulnerability into your presence. And so for those of us here who are so brave to approach, would you receive us? And for those of us here who are terrified to approach, would you come find us? Would you set our bones in place? Would you bring healing? Would you bring unity? Not just to this congregation, not just to our lives, but to the society and culture with which we find ourselves, for all of the ways that we are separated from one another, for all the sacrifices that have been shared across lunch counters in the back of buses, in legislative halls, and in meetings in churches. Receive the offerings that we give. And if all we have right now is a broken and contrite heart, then we're going to give you that for all that is still not well, that is still not healed or whole. So we trust that your offering of your very life is enough. And we live only in that hope. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen.